Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our shows at hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And I welcome your questions and feedback. I would love to hear from you. My email is hope at upc-online.org. On today's podcast, I'm going to discuss the current pandemic's impact on our food supply and particularly the meat industry that has been really heavily impacted by this crisis and has been in the news pretty much daily now for quite a while. And then we're going to have Free From Harm's Robert Grillo talking about his book, Farm to Fable, his work, Closing Slaughterhouses in Chicago, and much more. So as we stretch into months, not weeks, of this coronavirus crisis, an industry that's been hit really hard are meat packers and slaughterhouses. Meat processing plants are now the source of numerous new COVID-19 hotspots in these rural communities. A lot of them, outbreaks are coming from meat plants. There have been, at this time in about mid-May 2020, over 6,300 people working in this industry that have tested positive for the virus from over 100 plants in 28 states. And this is not really surprising, as the meatpacking industry is already notorious for poor working conditions even before this pandemic. People are crammed together tightly in these factories, much like how the animals lived that they are slaughtering and processing. Meat and poultry employees have among the highest rates already of injury and illness in all of manufacturing. And the numbers are probably even worse because they are less likely to report injuries and illness than any other type of worker. They fear repercussions from the company, possibly from immigration authorities, because many of them are undocumented. And factories are criticized all the time for refusing to let their employees use the bathroom, which would be, of course, where they could wash their hands to reduce the spread of coronavirus. So these places are just awful to their employees uh, already. And this crisis is just making it worse. Because so many plants are having problems and there's this increased demand for meat, companies have been asking for waivers to existing safety laws. And in April, the USDA, with approval from OSHA, allowed 15 poultry plants to exceed federal limits on how many birds workers can process in a minute. The reason for these limits are not necessarily for animal welfare, but for worker safety. So they have no problem putting people at risk in multiple ways. A worker at a Smithfield meat processing plant when all this started was feeling sick and had a fever and asked to go home and they refused to let him leave. He was quoted in a newspaper article as saying, quote, these people don't care about us. If you die, they'll just replace you tomorrow. Does that sound familiar? Perhaps similar to how the animals are treated that are slaughtered and processed in these places? Even though these are hotbeds of infection, governors and other officials are trying to keep them open if they can, even with hundreds of infected workers. The governor of Iowa called in 250 National Guard members to help keep their meat plants open. The president signed an executive order stating that meat processing plants to remain open. 
because meat is considered essential. Meat is not essential. The millions of healthy vegans can attest to that. Don't risk the lives of workers who can die quickly from the virus just so consumers can kill themselves slowly with meat. But many plants are closing because too many workers are sick. So what does that mean for the animals? Well, the business model makes it so that they can't just let the animals live or shelter in place for a few months. That's feed they can't afford to waste, and there are millions of younger animals being bred in facilities and hatcheries that need to take their place in the cages and pens, so they must kill the animals in mass. The words that they are using to describe this process, it's really, it's just offensive to me. You hear journalists and producers use words like cull and depopulate and euthanize. These are extremely sterilized words for what is really happening to these animals. United Poultry Concerns' Karen Davis was recently quoted in a publication called The Progressive Farmer, and she said, quote, To euthanize means to give someone a merciful, kind, and peaceful death. I'm aware this term is commonplace in production agriculture, but this is not euthanasia. This is outright cruelty, end quote. There are numerous gruesome ways meat and egg producers will mass kill chickens, turkeys, pigs, and other farmed animals. The National Pork Board published a document recently called COVID-19 Animal Welfare Tools for Pork Producers. And they listed numerous permitted methods for mass killing. And in these, they included gunshot, just shooting the animals, Manual blunt force trauma, basically beating the animals to death. Electrocution, poisoning by carbon monoxide or sodium nitrate. And that all this would be in a publication titled Animal Welfare Tools. It just shows you the disconnect and how little true care there is given to how these animals are treated and killed. Another permitted method is ventilation shutdown. Now, ventilation shutdown is also common for killing vast amounts of chickens at once. The company simply shuts off the building. All food and water is removed and the ventilation system and fans are shut off so that tens of thousands of birds at a time, uh, they suffer a prolonged death of suffocation, dehydration, heat prostration. Another horrible method to mass kill large amounts of chickens is filling the building with firefighter foam. And the birds basically suffocate and drown in chemical foam. It's got to be a horrific death. Another method is gassing the birds with carbon dioxide poisoning. These mass killings cause serious waste problems. What do they do with all the bodies? Many of them end up in landfills. There's blast furnaces that incinerate millions of bodies and cause air pollution issues. Uh, Some of them are just buried on the farm. They have these huge burial pits where they just, you know, bury all the bodies and that you know, pollutes the groundwater with blood and other waste. In 
articles that I've been reading about all this, the farmers use words like tragic choices and gut-wrenching decisions and devastating last resorts. But what are they so heartbroken about? Remember, these animals were destined for a gruesome slaughter anyway. Those distressed and devastated emotions from the industry are because they won't be making a profit on their bodies. Mass killing is not isolated to this crisis. Depopulating, culling, this happens fairly regularly. If there's an outbreak of an infectious disease in a flock and to keep it from spreading, millions of spent hens from the egg industry are gassed to death all the time. When a hen is what the industry considers spent, quote-unquote spent because her egg-laying quantity has declined or she's getting so sick from the terrible conditions she has to live in, then she is sent to slaughter. And that is at about one and a half, maybe two years old, when she could live 10 to 12 years. Because they have so little commercial value, many producers don't even send the spent laying hens to the slaughterhouse and they'll just kill entire buildings on site with CO2 gas because it's cheap and easy. They put the birds in containers like metal boxes, barrels, sealed dumpsters, and then they pump in the gas. The birds on the top burn and suffocate to death from the freezing CO2, but some on the bottom don't die, and they're just frightened and freaked out from all this, and the workers have to whack them with boards or stomp on them to kill them all. It's sickening and brutal. So the tragedy for the producers is economic, not ethical. I want to read a quote from an article in the National Review that I found written by Matthew Scully on this issue. Matthew Scully wrote an animal rights book called Dominion, and he wrote uh, in this article, quote, Sometimes failures in the system reveal the essence of the whole. Abnormal circumstances can clarify problems that pass for normal. The livestock farmers themselves, forced by their own mania for consolidation and hyper-efficiency, have made one harsh choice after another. Yet, if somehow it troubles them in their culling labors to treat millions of living creatures as nothing, bulldozed away like so much piled-up trash, then now's a good moment for all of us to notice that the system is just as merciless when it's working to perfection. The animal agriculture industry is utterly cruel to animals, callous to workers, harmful to the environment, and damaging to human health. This makes it the least essential industry in the United States and in the world, and I would argue the most immoral. Meat, dairy, and eggs are not essential. I have personally lived without them for 30 years, and I am healthy and thriving. They are not essential to me. They're not essential to you. What is essential is that we wake up to the fact that we have created this mess because of our exploitation and eating of animals. The meat industry is failing. Its supply chain is brittle. Its products are ethically and environmentally compromised. The horrors of the slaughterhouse for workers and animals are grossly exposed. 
It's a messy, disgusting, horrifying business. Let's close the slaughterhouses now to protect the workers, but keep them closed to protect us all. The animals, humans, the planet, all of us, shut them down. Okay, well, there is some good news out of all this. With sporadic supply of meat, that means that meat prices will increase. And meanwhile, plant-based meat sales are through the roof. Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, both plant-based up-and-coming meat companies, I'm hearing about them in the news all the time now. They're increasing sales, they're increasing supply, dropping prices, giving away food to food banks. Beyond Meat sales were up 85% just from mid-March, and there's been a 500% increase in sales of Impossible Burgers. Impossible Burgers were mostly available in restaurants, but they were planning to roll out in grocery stores this year anyway. They were only in about 150 grocery stores nationwide at the beginning of this year. They have just increased that to 2,700 grocery stores in April alone, and they plan to have products in more than 10,000 stores by the end of the year. So this was really great timing for them. So we could really see with this pandemic, an acceleration of the transition to plant-based meats that was already trending. So perhaps a silver lining in all this could be more healthy and ethical consumer habits. And that would be a truly wonderful thing for the animals and for all of us to come out of this crisis. So we're going to switch focus now and bring in our special guest, who is Robert Grillo. We are so happy to have him. He is an activist, author, and speaker. He's the founder and director of Free From Harm, a nonprofit dedicated to helping end animal exploitation. He was a communications professional for over 20 years and worked on some of the largest food industry accounts where he got behind the scenes perspectives and information on food branding and marketing. He has written a book called Farm to Fable, the fictions of our animal consuming culture, as well as numerous articles and additions to other books. And he is one of the contributing authors to the book that I'm editing called The Humane Hoax Anthology that will be coming out in 2021. So I am thrilled to welcome Robert Grillo. Well, thank you, Hope. It's so good to catch up with you. It's been so long. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to have you on, Robert. I am so glad to talk to you. And, you know, you and I have a special bond in that we're some of the only authors, two of the only authors who have written books about the humane hoax. And just for those who may not know the term, the, the humane hoax, it refers to really just a host of different labels that we're seeing getting more and more popular now on animal products like cage-free and certified humane and organic, and also greenwashing labels, making things seem more environmental than they actually are, with labels like sustainable and free-range and grass-fed. And uh, I know you wrote your book, uh, Farm to Fable, on this subject, The Humane Hoax. And uh, I love the title, by the way. I've always been jealous of the title of your book, Farm to Fable. It's a great title. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And I just wondered, you know, what inspired you to write your book, Farm to Fable? 
Sure, yeah. So um, what preceded the book was having worked in the uh, ad agency world and particularly with food industry accounts, you know, because Chicago is, number one, it's like a center for advertising. Number two, it's where a lot of the big, big food industry giants and the big players are like Kraft and, Foods. And, and you're Con in Chicago. That's right. Yeah. yeah. In Chicago. Right. So I started, um, you know, I started freelancing when I was in my 20s and I started working at ad agencies where they were working on like things like Happy Meal boxes and craft food packages, you know, and all that kind of crap. And um, I just found myself working on this stuff. And of course, at the time, you know, I didn't think anything of it. It was just kind of like normal. Right. But now when I look back on that, it's just a, it's such a surreal shift to like, you know, to look at, look back on that and, and see what, what's really behind that. You know, like for example, on a Happy Meal box, what, what are they really doing there? They're, they're, they're trying to make animal products look like something fun, like an old McDonald's farm that a kid would go to, like a petting zoo and all these happy farm animals on the cover. And, and what's inside, you know, the, the body parts of uh, animals that led miserable lives. Um, so it's just such a surreal thing to look back on that time. But that was kind of my catalyst. I felt like I had a natural, organic kind of understanding of how brands market the myth, um, the humane myth and so many other myths that I felt like a book about the humane myth was, was just a natural extension of what my experience was having worked behind the scenes with some of the best minds who make the big bucks, you know, the, the six-figure salaries to come up with these incredibly idiotic fantasies. But they work. Yeah. So yesterday, you know, for example, I'll just, I like to use like anecdotes when I talk about this stuff because... There's so many cases of it. Like just yesterday, I, I was speaking to a reporter and he was doing a story about a slaughterhouse that, whose license had been suspended. And one of the questions he had for me was, well, aren't these smaller places better? Like, aren't they more humane and aren't they, you know, fresher and this and that? And I said, oh no, absolutely not. I, I said, first of all, you know, the birds, and these are, this is a bird slaughterhouse that we're talking about. These birds come from the same farms that the large scale farms purchase from. And they come and the, the eggs are hatched at the same hatcheries. The industrial scale hatcheries where the same, you know, big industrial farms purchase their stock from. So, you know, I explained to him what the life is like of a, of a chicken that ends up at a slaughterhouse at six weeks old. And how they come from the hat, you know, the hatchery delivers the, the product. They dump the chicks onto a, a warehouse floor, as many as, you know, they can pack in. And then automatic feeders and waters are basically the only thing they see. Those that can get to food and water get to food and water. Those that can't don't get to eat. And there's no human interaction until after six weeks, you know, a catcher, catchers come in and, and, catch the birds in the middle of the night and stuff them into crates and haul them off to slaughter. You know, I told him, I said, watch our video because what we show is like not the whole process, but the, 
the delivery of the birds to the slaughterhouse, which is horrendous. From that point to, you know, the actual slaughter. And I said, look, you know, see for yourself. The bird doesn't care whether it's a large scale or a small scale operation. They don't know any different. They only know it's just as horrendous as it, it would be anywhere. Just because something is on, on a smaller scale, it doesn't, doesn't mean much in terms of like, is it better? And you know, people like to use that word better. That's a very nebulous kind of word because what do they mean by better? Better for the animal, better for the environment? Neither. So yeah, I, I set him straight. <laughs> it was like, hell no. Watch our video of footage that we've compiled of these local places that market themselves as, you know, some even organic and they go by religious. They don't even follow their halal and kosher religious practices, actually. And those, not to say that those are um, better because they're not, but they don't even follow them. But they do market their products as kosher and halal. They market them as organic, as local, as buying something fresher because it's right in the neighborhood. And it's all, it's all just marketing. Yeah. I remember when you came out here to California and visited us here in Northern California, and you went to a small-scale farm here. I believe it was a dairy farm, and you wrote about what you saw there. Uh, do you want to uh, talk about that a little bit? I remember that being a really uh, powerful and poignant article that you wrote. Yeah, thank you. Um, that was an experience that I just will be forever kind of embedded in my mind, and I just have such a vivid memory of it, of the whole thing. And so Tom and I were driving on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, and we were just kind of stopping, you know, here and there to, to hike and up, you know, to the ocean. And then, you know, we noticed that there were these, these small dairy operations spotted throughout the landscape there. And we were like, wow, that's really, that's really messed up for one thing, because um, this is such a pristine wilderness, or it's supposed to be. That's, that's what they touted as. And yet, why are these, you know, dairy farms, just because they have a history of being here for like 150 or 200 years, we're supposed to respect that as part of the tradition of the landscape? I mean, th these are, this is a, 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 an ecosystem that has evolved over millions of years. I mean, a 150, 200 year tradition of some human tradition doesn't count as part of the, what's natural in that landscape. You know, it's just kind of, ridiculous or it was ridiculous to us when we were we were out there so anyway we found one dairy farm that was just right off the side of the road and so we, I just told Tom to pull over and I decided to get out and look around and um, the owner was there he was on his tractor and I approached him and he was really nice he was younger he was probably in his 30s he said that he had been in in this business for his family business for several generations and he was carrying it on. And um, he showed me around. He showed me the calf hutches and, you know, we looked through that and it was just, um, it was a really sad, really kind of disturbing situation there because each calf was different. One would be really terrified and crouched in a corner. Another one would be like, bellowing you know like or make, making their call out the little back window and just look looking really anxious another one just was looking coming up to us and like wanting to nurse so like you know 
sucking on your hand that they like the way like the way they do because they really want to you know suck on their mother's udders of course so each one was different in how they responded but it was all very it was all very sad it was like and, and they had been they had been taken from their mothers and were in these you maybe describe the calf hutches so that they're completely separated from their moms that's right um these little white plastic hutches that you see many have many have seen in like photos but you know this is what they use. Um, there were about four or five rows of 20. It was a small operation. And so, yeah, these are the females that would be um, taken from their mothers right away and um, placed in these hutches and separate hutches. And that's their existence for, you know, whatever, three, four months until they're bred for milk or reared for milk. So we went, we went through the, the hutches and we, you know, I looked at each calf and could tell like, you know, what a sad, existence it was for them um and then he took me around to the, where the mother cows were were all kind of like cordoned off into this really small area they were they were there to be waiting in line almost kind of not in line but they were in kind of a square pen waiting to be milked because there's a milking parlor right there contrary to what most people think, you know, these cows are not off on pasture, getting a lot of good exercise and, you know, eating grass and all that. They're, in, they're up to their ankles in, in waste and, and dirt and mud um, and just standing there for hours waiting to be milked. And they, they looked pretty in pretty terrible shape too. And there was one calf that was on the other side of this enclosure that they were in there was a lot of them in a tiny little space there was a little male calf and and there were two females trying to reach out to him to you know lick him he was probably just born and and uh ernest was the owner uh explained to me that this calf was a male that would be sent off to slaughter and i said so how does that work he says well i never i never leave this farm i never see where they go I know they go to get slaughtered. The truck comes to pick them up and I never see them again. So that was really interesting to me because a lot of people, well, farmers kind of <laughs> give us this uh, in, uh, perception of themselves as being kind of omniscient about animals and about farming, right? But the fact of the matter is a lot of them only see parts of the process. And in this case, Ernest never sees the violence that happens to the calves, never sees them until after they leave his farm and the truck hauls him away. Um, so then he kind of went into like how he does his own AI, which is, you know, artificial insemination. And he was really proud of it. That was kind of the gross, disgusting part that I found, uh, just how like he how proud he was of saving money and not having to hire someone to do it and that he could do it himself and the way he explained it too is really disturbing it was like you know you have to you have to impregnate them sometimes several times to make sure that they're they're actually going to be pregnant and sometimes it takes several tries and he described how you know how they um forcibly impregnate them through their rectum and it was really gross uh, to hear that whole thing. And also, you know, just the way he described it as being like so normal. So without any concern 
for the for the animals. Yeah, um, and yeah, just just to clarify, so they 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 do insert their arm into the cow's rectum all the way up to their armpit, basically, and then another uh, device, like a I think they call it the insemination gun, right? A metal device goes into their uh, vagina and and that's where the sperm goes. So the sperm's not going into the rectum, but they are, they do insert their arm into the rectum because they manipulate the insides of the cow, yeah. the, the tubes and stuff to make it more uh, viable to, to, for her to, to accept the egg. Pretty disgusting and, and, and a, a, just sounds like a horrible process for the poor cow. Yeah, and the fact that you know, they didn't get it right or that it gets botched, that it has to be done several times also really kind of makes you think, oh, this is all do-it-yourself um, farming here. And like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's almost like what I've heard about people in backyard chicken forums saying, oh, yeah, you know how to get rid of a blocked egg is you force your thumb up the, you know, the rectum of a chicken and you do this, that. And it's all this, you know, this bad, bad, dangerous advice that you yeah. get. Um, from from backyard chicken keepers. That's what it kind of reminded me of. Like this guy didn't really know what he was doing, but he was saving money by having someone like come in and do it. Not that the, not that a professional. I'm not suggesting that there's a good way to do it. However, the the AI people that actually do this probably do it once and it's done. Um, Whereas in his case, he said he had to do it several times sometimes. So I know that you have some birds that you have rescued and that you've lived with. And I've met some of these wonderful creatures um, at your house. And I wondered if you could tell me some of the stories of your feathered friend companions that, that uh, you have rescued and, and what that's meant to your life. Yeah, oh, I'd love to. In 2009 was uh, the first... Uh, a flock of adopted chickens that I that I rescued and adopted from a school chick hatching project and so I had no experience back then I just decided very impulsively that I was gonna you know adopt some of there was a flock of, actually a flock of 19 and I chose um, three of them and just real quick what is a chick hatching project explain that Oh, yeah, sure. These schools purchase eggs from a hatchery and an incubator, and they set them up, but oftentimes there's no supervision. There's no really good guidance for how teachers or administrators need to care for these chicks. And they're in a classroom, and oftentimes, you know, I mean, the results are poor, you know, because, again, you have, like, do-it-yourselfers, people that never have cared for animals before. They don't really understand. They're not given good direction. And so a lot of these, these birds, some of them die, some of them are, have deformities, you know, just not good. A friend, uh, Tom's, uh, one of his closest friends is a school teacher in the Chicago public school system. And he was trying to help a teacher adopt out 19 of these chicks. And so that's how I came to adapt the three. And so I raised them like into adulthood and I had no idea, you know, what I was gonna be doing. Uh, at the time I adopted them, I wasn't sure. I didn't even think long term. I wasn't thinking like, oh, here's birds that could live 10 years or eight or 10 years. And my plan is to keep them or, you know, I had no idea. I was just taking it one day at a time. Well, but I ended up keeping them throughout their life. And I had a little uh, rooster named Ricardo. 
and uh, Doris and Danita. They, they're all past now, but the, that was my first experience raising chickens, and um, it was three of them. And then I adopted a few more to add to the flock. I, I adopted Sweet Pea, and I adopted um, Sandy because she was a hen that nobody wanted because she wasn't laying any eggs. So I adopted her. And so I had five, at, at one time I had five all, all at the same time. And it was just, you know, it's really a gift to, to do this because if you kind of just give them a safe, loving home and you're really good at like just kind of sitting back and observing them and interacting with them, it's really, uh, it's a gift because you realize that each one has their own very unique personality and the way they interact with you, um, it's really special. It's really fascinating. Um, and, and also how they interact with each other and how they interact with like other, like watching what's going on in their environment, like with other wildlife, with squirrels, with birds, and just seeing how they respond to things. Um, very rich lives, I think, that they lead. I've also, in the last 10, 12 years, I've rescued a guinea fowl, quail, a turkey, and, and ducks, ducks that are raised for meat. And some of our rescues have come from slaughterhouses, have escaped from local slaughterhouses. So yeah, and it's interesting because those are breeds that are literally bred to live six to seven weeks. And then they're you know, basically at a point where they, they would consider them ready to slaughter. And then to see them live beyond that and, and how their bodies have been engineered you know, to get so large, they really develop problems. Like I was just talking to Rahana, uh, she's a woman I know that has a sanctuary, and she actually has the Cornish rock, which, you know, the industry calls broilers. She has three of those, and they're, one of them is three years old. She's had them for, for three years. And I just marveled at that because she's been able to maintain their, their health the health of birds that were really only intended to live a matter of weeks before they would develop serious problems with their, their legs or their heart. You know, we had three of the same breed that had heart failure within weeks after we rescued them. And they wow. were in very calm. They were very well taken care of. They were in calm environments, but they didn't make it. So the amazing thing about those those birds too that came from slaughterhouses you'd think they would be terrified and they they just wouldn't want any human interaction at all and yet the opposite was true it was like they were so affectionate within just an hour or two of being rescued they were ready to like curl up by your foot or your lap and take a nap they were just so sweet wow that's awesome so I know that you have started a campaign called Slaughter Free Cities and Slaughter Free Chicago. And I'm curious as to what that is all about and how that got started. Tell us about your campaign, Slaughter Free Cities. Yeah, sure. So Slaughter Free Chicago, I started in late 2018. Slaughter Free Cities was, is a more recent development, really just be responding to the fact that once Slaughter Free Chicago got off the ground, several other activists from different cities approached us wanting to start a chapter in their city. 
And that's what our hope was from the very beginning, was that our campaign would inspire other cities to take on the same kind of campaign and see if they could do it in their city and that it would spread. What is it all about? What do you do? Well, just as the name suggests, um, we seek to end slaughter in our city. And so to me, it made sense to start in Chicago because Chicago once promoted itself as the slaughter capital of the world. This is where industrialized slaughter took hold in the turn of the, you know, this 20, uh, the, the last century. And so a few wealthy industrialists, the Armors and the Swifts and some other, a few other families, they made fortunes, huge fortunes, off of countless workers and, and animals by creating the stockyards, Chicago stockyards, which was at the time the largest meatpacking and slaughter complex in the world. And they actually had, it was a tourist destination. <clears throat> so believe it or not, you could go to a, a tourist office in Chicago and you would find postcards of, of, of the stockyards. And hundreds of thousands of visitors uh, went to the stockyards and actually saw the whole process. It was the basis for Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle. His work is so important to us because he provided a completely different perspective on the slaughterhouse industry. Instead of glorifying it as the, you know, the backbone of, of the economy, of the Chicago economy, he said, I got hired undercover to work in the stockyards. And he wrote a book about his experience of being a worker inside of this place for like several weeks. And the jungle really changed the world's view of this industry in a way that was fundamental, I think. And it still resonates today. There are young people that I know that are, you know, 18, 20, and they know the book. They know Upton Sinclair. They know about his legacy. And so we've kind of seized on that because we feel that it's really, it's the basis for our work. What we're doing is kind of bringing his, his you know, vision to a logical conclusion. We're ending slaughter. We're ending this horrible, not a beautiful thing, not a thing that is something to be proud of, like the history books actually portray the stockyards. No, it was a horrible, horrible existence for workers and for animals and for the environment. That's the reality that, that we project. And we say, no, we're, this isn't something for, for us to be proud of. Let's close the chapter on this history. And let's start a new era of <clears throat> a slaughter-free city in, a, in the place where slaughter actually first took hold in, on an industrial level. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. So how many slaughterhouses are there in Chicago right now? Well, we've, we've helped close uh, three of them. And we have about, uh, we have two large animal slaughterhouses. And then we have about 10 storefront type bird slaughterhouses left. And we think that several of those are in legal jeopardy. We have a lawsuit against one of them and a second one on its way. And if we win that first case, which we think we have a very good chance of winning, that will set a, a legal precedent, which could then reverberate and really affect the others because um, the city can no longer use its argument, that, which is a, a, 
an incorrect argument about zoning that these places can remain open and continue operating as a slaughterhouse. It's a little, it gets a little bit into the, the legalese and the minutiae, but the bottom line is there, the city's argument in, in keeping these places, allowing them to continue in slaughter when they're not, they're not legally zoned for that if we win this first case, we should be able to shut down the rest of them. Great. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, though, that you might have to have a, a slaughter-free counties <laughs> uh, organization as well, because most large-scale slaughterhouses are not really in cities so much. They put them in rural areas on purpose to hide them from large populations uh, of people. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that a lot of them aren't in a prominent location as Chicago, but we'll get to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea is you start somewhere and right. like Martin, like, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s model for activism was you start in the place where the injustice is really the greatest, the yes. greatest or whatever. So like in Selma, um, it was not a large city, right? But it was the epicenter of the civil rights movement because Martin Luther King chose that as, a, as having symbolic importance. And I think when you choose a place that has symbolic importance like Chicago does for slaughter, then <clears throat> there's a good chance of that story reverberating. So our hope is that, like, for instance, if we have success here, we are having success. But if we continue to have the success that, that we want, which is completely closing all of them, we do think that that will inspire people in, in other counties, like you said, counties and towns. And it will go to places that, that it's not now and, and spread that way. So that's our hope. So if somebody was interested in uh, possibly getting involved in either your campaign or starting their own, uh, where would they go to uh, get information? Sure. So our website is at slaughterfreechicago.com. And for those who are interested in the, looking into setting up a chapter, if they're in another city or town, we, have, we are working hard at, on a chapter setup guide. And we have something that is, is usable and we think useful to people to get started. So we would ask someone to send us an email from our website and let us know that they might be interested in setting up a chapter and that we would then schedule a call with them to kind of help them get started. If someone's just interested in the campaign to join it and to kind of keep up to date on what's going on, they can just uh, they can join our campaign uh, uh, from that website as well, and they can just kind of get our updates, periodic updates. That's great, Robert. Wonderful work. Uh, that's just fantastic. Um, I'm so glad you guys are out there doing that. And uh, I just wondered if you had any final thoughts as we have to wrap up. Yeah. Um, well. Free from Harm is still going strong, and uh, it's always been kind of digital, you know, it's about our digital presence on the web, on the internet, and social media, so um, we still, you know, we're doing publishing work once a week and doing uh, lots of activity on social media, so follow us on all those platforms and sign up for our email list if you want, but yeah, Free from Harm is still going strong. Wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. And I'm glad you're going strong. And uh, 
thank you so much for being a guest on uh, the Hope for the Animals podcast. We so much appreciate you being here, Robert. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Hope. It's great to catch up with you. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I welcome comments and questions. My email is hope at upc-online.org. You can support this podcast with a donation to upc-online.org. Please consider the animals in all you do and live vegan. Thank you.